Well, church, may I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 27 this morning. Uh, you want to use the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 21, Genesis 27. And uh, I do want to encourage you, as I, I like to, uh, we, especially when we're do, taking care of these narratives, these stories, it's going to be very, very helpful for you to have a copy of God's Word open. We're going to do 40 verses this morning, verse by verse. And so you will stay engaged, uh, I trust, more easily if you have God's Word open before you. Of course, the reason why we're studying Genesis 27 and a man named Jacob is not uh, because we want to become like Jacob, as that will be clear in a moment, uh, but rather we're studying God's plan of redemption. So, you know, Genesis begins with God creating all things. He is the ruler and creator and sustainer of everything, including you and I, and yet soon after that, Humanity rebels against him, and so we go from creation to curse. Everything falls apart as the pinnacle of creation rejects uh, its creator and goes its own way. And yet God, in his great grace and mercy, has a plan to redeem humanity. In fact, redeem all of creation. And so we are reading about that plan of redemption. In fact, he chose this pagan man from nowhere, a man named Abraham, living in a a pagan land and said, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you and I'm going to bless you and through you, I'm going to bless all the peoples of this world. And then uh, he passed that covenant on to his son Isaac and now even today we'll see that covenant being passed on to Abraham's grandson, a man named Jacob, that God is responding to the curse by entering into a covenant, a covenant of grace. And that he might redeem sinners and glorify himself. And he's going to do so through the lineage of this man, Jacob, whom we are studying this winter. And so with that kind of refresher as to why we're studying these passages, hear now the word of God from Genesis 27, beginning in verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here am I. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father such as he loves And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and, and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord, your God, granted me success. And Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, 
The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. I believe it reveals our heart to us and even more so reveals your grace, your sovereign, overruling grace. And so speak to us now through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. William Shakespeare, of course, the the greatest English playwright, often wrote tragedies. In fact, most of his plays are tragedies. Uh, Usually in a tragedy you have a hero, and typically someone with great virtue is yet overcome by some vice in his life. And so we have, of course, Romeo and Juliet and King Lear and Julius Caesar, Hamlet, and I think my favorite would be Macbeth. Macbeth, if if you're familiar with the story, is a noble man of great courage. He's a man of incredible loyalty. And yet he has this desire for power. And he gives in to such temptations, which leads to this incredible sin, which follows into this uh, crippling guilt and eventually leading to utter ruin. There's a line that Shakespeare writes that I think is beautiful and powerful when he says, Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Well, Shakespeare, who was famous for writing these tragedies, did not invent them. Perhaps he was inspired to write them based upon his knowledge of Scripture. You see, the Bible is full of tragedy. It's full of individuals who indeed have some virtue, don't they? And yet they are overwhelmed by some sin in their life, which leads to ruin. Genesis 27, of course, is one of the many examples we find in the Bible. That that we, we might even say as we read this story, something is rotten in Beersheba. And yet, thankfully, as we see, sin does not win the day. You see, in Scripture, we'll leave... Shakespeare's motif, and we'll see in the end, as we shall see today, that though our sin be great, God's grace is greater still. We see four characters in the tragedy before us, all of whom contribute to uh, their own sin, uh, to uh, the events that we see. Esau is scheming here to recover what he has already given away. Isaac is rejecting the word of God. Rebecca is clearly uh, full of control, manipulation. Jacob, we see his deceit and his theft. It is a family that is a mess. It's almost like reality TV. Right? I, I don't know if you, uh, I'm not a big fan of reality TV, but there was a show I used to like. I don't know if you ever watched it. it it's a show that you should have watched if you think you're a bad parent. It was called Nanny 911. You ever see that show? There's another one, Super Nanny, and, uh, and, and the nanny comes into the family to fix the family, and like the, the four-year-old's smoking a cigarette, and the, you know, the six-year-old is spanking his dad, and, uh, and you watch this show, and you think, yeah, I'm a pretty good parent. I, I, I know what I'm doing. Right? And this, the whole family is just an utter wreck. It's just a mess. Well, 4,000 years ago, they didn't have reality TV. They had scripture. Okay? And so we're going to look in on this family. This is reality. This is a true story. It's not a fable. This actually happened. And this is one, one of the many, many stories in scripture. You might be surprised to hear this, especially if you're not a Christian. This is one of the many, many stories in scripture where sin is on center stage. 
Because I think we come to the Bible, we read the Bible, and we expect the religious people to be doing God's will. And then you got the, the sinful people out here, outside the family of God, outside the people of God. And to be perfectly honest, it's usually the opposite. It's usually the people of God who are mired in sin and transgression. Uh, the, the, we're, we're, we, I think, uh, we're kind of schooled to think you got, you know, white hat and black hat, right? You got the good guys and the bad guys. You got the, well, the dark side and the, and the light side. Well, we find out that most of the time the people of God are on the dark side. They are really wicked people doing terrible things. And yet God's mercy, God's plan is accomplished despite them. Perhaps even through their sin. In fact, we not only see four characters, there's actually a fifth. He's working behind the curtain, if you will. It is our God who accomplishes his sin. Accomplishes, excuse me, not his sin. Clearly, that's a misstatement. God forgive me. Accomplishes his plan despite our sin, I should say. And when I say that, that God accomplishes his plan despite our sin, please don't uh, misunderstand me. I'm not saying God approves of sin. That God minimizes sin. Or that even God erases the consequences of sin. But our sin, please understand this, and you might be encouraged by this, if your life or family is just messed up because of sin, our sin, your sin, will not stop God's determination to redeem a people and to glorify his name through grace. We might even call it sovereign grace, overruling grace, that in the midst of rebellion, God works to accomplish his plans through sinners. The first sinner on the stage is none other than the patriarch Isaac himself. As you see, first of all, Isaac's rebellion. Now, I want to uh, just refresh us. We studied uh, Genesis 26, I think, three weeks ago, and we ended on a high note with Isaac. Remember? He had a peace treaty with Abimelech. He built a, uh, an altar. He planted a church, if you will. He, he's got his family. He's got his job. He's got his church. He's worshiping God. Everything's going well. He's got the covenant promises now of God passed on to him, and yet it seemed time has passed. In fact, decades have passed when we get to Genesis 27, and he has been, the, the earnestness that he once had towards God seems to have with the years and taking control of his life as he falls more and more in love with the comforts of this life. In particular, food is going to be Isaac's big issue. Now remember back in Genesis 25 when his two twin sons were born, Jacob and Esau, uh, that Isaac loved Esau. Remember why? Because of the food that Esau brought him. Right? And now we see this, uh, this, this attraction to food, uh, fleshly desires, if you will, um, have a great hold upon this man of God. There in verse 1 we read, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here am I. And here he is, he's bringing Esau to himself, and he's doing so because Isaac thinks he's dying. We know at this time he is 137 years old. He's an old guy, right? And uh, the parts are breaking, okay? The oil is leaking, so to speak. And he thinks, you know, I don't know how much time I have left. He actually, believe it or not, has 43 more years. Okay? He's got a lot of miles left on him. But he doesn't know that. He's gone blind at this point, and he thinks he's dying, and therefore, what does he want to do? He wants to pass on the patriarchal blessing, as you see in verse 3. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now this blessing that he wants to pass on is more than an inheritance. It's more than his possessions. It's a, if you will, it's a prophetic promise that will be honored by God. In particular, to continue uh, the covenant of grace that God has entered into Isaac with. Now he's going to pass it on to Esau. And in that covenant is the lineage of the coming Messiah. And so just as Isaac received this promise, like his daddy before him, Abraham, now he seeks to give it to Esau. Now these blessings, we know from other scriptures, are public events. They're big deals. These are celebrations. There's a feast that happens. You invite the neighbors and the servants so they can all bear witness to this. Right? We see this in Jacob's life. Uh, when, when he dies in Genesis 49, he calls everybody together to pass on his blessings. Moses does something very similar. This is a public act 
as you passed on the responsibilities and privileges of being in relationship with God. But you notice here that they're doing this in secret. Just the two of them. No announcement, no public feast, instead calling Esau to himself privately, no doubt hoping no one would hear. And you might ask, why the secrecy? Well, because they're sinning. And so you, when you sin, you do what? You do it in secret. This is all a tactic we're all very familiar with, right? We all know that, right? We don't want people to see this, so we try to hide it from other people. So they get together and they hatch this little plan. Now, I say they're sinning because you remember that a prophecy has been given by God to Isaac and Rebekah. Remember that? Back in Genesis 25, that the older shall serve the younger, that God has chosen to bear the messianic mantle, Jacob, to continue that lineage, not Esau. And Isaac, fully aware of this, refuses to yield himself to the word of God, and he instead is going to bless the older, his favorite son, to become the head of the clan. Now, this is in great contrast to his father Abraham. Remember, Abraham had a very similar situation. He, too, had a firstborn son. His name was Ishmael. He, too, wanted to pass on the covenantal blessings to Ishmael. And God said, no, we're going to do it with the secondborn son, Isaac. And remember, Abraham, he, he yielded to God. He said, okay, I've presented my, re- my request to God. God said, no, and so we're going to do it God's way. Well, not so for Isaac. He instead decides to defy God. And he's going to do so in secret so no one could interfere with this. And so you notice the feast is for himself alone. And that he will bless his son inside the flaps of this tent before anyone could find out. It's somewhat stunning, I think. Because if Isaac is so certain of his death, you think he'll have a little more care for God's plan. One wonders if it is the worldly pleasures that have captured his heart as we see his delight in food. And it's not just here. In fact, six times in this passage, you'll hear the phrase, delicious food, whom your father loves. Eight times you'll hear about eating. Seven times you'll hear about the game that is being brought. Isaac is setting himself against God because he wants something to eat. Just like his son Esau did, if you remember back in chapter 25. Give me some of that stew. Take my birthright. What do I care? And yet we think how silly and foolish this is, and yet I wonder how many times we actually do something very similar. That we we toss away the sweetness of fellowship with Jesus for illicit passion, for forbidden acts. I wonder, Christian, are, are God's plans ever contrary to your desires? God says we're going this way, and you really want to go this way. Maybe the marriage is not working out as you hoped it would be. And so you're considering finding satisfaction elsewhere. Perhaps you long to be married. And so you're considering marrying an unbeliever in violation of God's word. Maybe you're a teenager and you despise your parents' rules and so you are electing to deceive them in secret. Maybe you long for an extra 500 square feet or some fancy countertop and so you neglect your family as you earnestly pursue that promotion. May I suggest to you that the Bible tells us that will not work out as you think. That path outside God's will always leads to guilt, despair, and ruin. It is a tragedy. That rather faithful obedience to God, regardless of what his will is, is the place of joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And I wonder what plans you have for your life. And maybe you think, you know, you have grand plans. Maybe not. Maybe not so grand. I just want a a spouse and some children and a nice modest home. And you say, what's wrong with that? Well, in some sense, nothing's wrong with that. But let me suggest to you that God has created you so not that you might pursue your own agenda and your own ambition, but namely his. That is, of course, to reflect his glory and his righteousness and to bring him your worship. I think it's helpful for us to be reminded that the essence of sin is not wickedness. The essence of sin is disregard for the one who has actually made you. The one who has claims upon you. And that might be an interesting conversation over lunch today. Especially if you're not a Christian. Maybe you're brought here by a Christian. And you might say, well, the pastor said God has claims on me. What does that mean? What kind of claims does God have on me? 
Well, blind old Isaac has certainly disregarded such demands as he secretly seeks to defy the Lord. And if he thought he's going to get that one by Rebecca, well, he's more blind than we realize. As you see, secondly, Rebecca's manipulation. Look in verse 5. Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Right? So she, he's under surveillance. And the tent flaps aren't very thick. And we know that the old man's blind. He may be a little hard of hearing. And sometimes when you get hard of hearing, the volume, it goes up. Right? And so maybe it's not as secret as he actually thinks. And so she hears it all. She calls Jacob to herself and hatches her own plan as you read on in verse 5. So when Esau went out to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare from them a delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. So there's a whole scheme of her own. It would be nice, wouldn't it, if we read, uh, she called Jacob and said, son, your dad is sinning against the Lord. Let's pray for him. Right? It would be nice when, if, if we read when she heard her husband, her heart was broken, that, her, that Isaac had set himself against God's will. Or, or maybe it would be nice if we read, and Jacob said to his mother, fear not, mother, uh, God's plans will come true despite our dad's sin. But no, sadly, uh, they too are not concerned with God, are they? They want their own schemes, just as Isaac did. you got Esau obeying the voice of Isaac, Jacob obeying the voice of Rebekah, and no one obeying the voice of God. So she sent Jacob out to slaughter a couple goats. She is going to prepare a counterfeast. Evidently, she's an incredible cook because she can make goat even taste good. <laughs> We're going to trick the blind old fool, she tells her son. We're going to get that blessing for you. And yet Jacob hesitates, not because he has any moral problems of deceiving his father, but rather he has concerns if he can actually pull it off. As you see in verse 11, but Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. So he fears getting caught. Right? I might, this might, might turn on its head. I might not, not only not get a blessing, but I might get a curse instead. See, he's not worried about the sin at all. He says, I want to sin. This is a good plan of sinning. Right? But I don't want the consequences. Rebecca has an answer, doesn't she? She says, don't worry, my son. I'll take the consequences. These stunning words in verse 13. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. She perhaps would have done well to think twice about uttering that statement. We can't be sure, but it is interesting that by the end of this day, the whole family is destroyed. And in particular, she will send her favorite son away, which she thinks for just a few days. And a few days will turn into a year, which will turn into seven years, which will turn into 14 years, which will turn into 20 years. And she will never see her son again. In fact, the Bible will not even record her death. It will record the burial of Rebekah's maid, but not the burial of Rebekah. We'll never see her again in Scripture. As she utters these terrible words, let the curse be upon me. Well, she has quite the plan, as you see in verse 14. She's not done with her scheme. So he went out and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, and the skins of young goats. She put them on his hands and the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread, which she had prepared, into the hands of her son Jacob. Right? She's thought through all the details. Right? And so if you're going to sin, you need to think through the details. Right? You need, to, you need to plan beforehand what you're going to say if you're caught, right? You need to lock the door, right? You need to make sure that no one's going to find out, right? And this is, this is a, I, listen, this is a tactic. You may deny it, but I think it's probably a tactic we're all familiar with as well. And so she has thought through all the details. She even dresses him. Do you notice that? Jacob, by the way, is a grown man at this time. 
I love my mother, but if she's dressing me as an adult, we got a whole other problem. I mean, it's ridiculous. There in his older brother's clothes, you know, with goat skin tied on his neck and his hands, his mother shoving a, a steaming pot of spice goat there right before him, shoving him towards her father while she hovers in the background. I mean, this man must be hoping, please, no one walk in and see me like this. It's utterly absurd. And yet there is a deeper absurdity here because I think, although the text is not explicit, I would speculate that there is no doubt that Rebecca is in some way comforting herself in thinking that the word of God is on her side. After all, God did say that the blessing will come to Jacob. And yes, I'm deceiving my husband. Yes, I'm manipulating my son. But don't the ends justify the means? Again, Perhaps a tactic we're familiar with. That we are, I think, oftentimes proficient in finding proof texts to support our schemes. God has, after all, told me in Scripture, I need to provide for my family. And so I'll fudge on my taxes and withhold my tithe. God he has told me that, uh, that you know, uh, uh, love the one that you're going to marry, and I'm going to marry her anyways. And so certainly it's okay if I'm intimate before marriage. God wants to build his church clearly. He's told me as much. And so if I make up personal stories that never really happened to me in order to uh, make the sermon a little bit easier to listen to, certainly that's okay. Right? See, please understand that God controls all things. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, he does not need your manipulations to actually accomplish his goals. Right? He will do what he has said to do. He doesn't need our schemes, and he doesn't need our plans. He certainly does not need our sin to fulfill his purposes. So let us stop justifying the sin in your life as if we are helping God accomplish what he wants. Instead, we ought to repent and do what God has called us to do. Well, Rebecca, she wants this control, now demanding her grown son to obey her, dishonor God, and he is... Seems willing to do so. He enters his dad's tent in this Halloween costume he's wearing, carrying this mouth-watering plate of, of goat, and he seeks to deceive his father. As you see the third character in this tragedy, Jacob and his deceit. Jacob and his deceit. Look in verse 18. So he went to, into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I. Who are you, my son? Isaac clearly senses something is wrong. In fact, there will be five times in which he will question the identity of Jacob. But Jacob, as we know, and we'll see further as we study his life, is quite the deceiver. I mean, he, is, he excels at lying. And he will, you, you could count him if you will. We did so in our family worship last night. He repeatedly lies to his father, beginning here in verse 19. Jacob uh, said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. This is raises a question in Isaac's mind. If you're Esau, how did you get this meal so quickly? The answer is shocking, isn't it? There in verse 20, but Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Praise God, Dad. I went outside and the deer was standing right there. And it almost just laid down. I walked up to it, killed it, and here I am. All glory be to God. He's sinning, and he's blaming Jesus for it. The Bible has a term for this. It's called blasphemy. And Jacob seems to have no qualms in committing it. Well, Isaac's not quite buying it yet, is he? As you see in verse 21, Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and felt him, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. You see, the, his sight is gone. His ears still work. His ears tell him the truth, don't they? But he ignores what he hears and goes with what he feels. And again, I think, how often do we do the same? How often do we whack, walk the, the path of foolishness following not what we've heard, namely from God's word, but what we feel? 
We should let the Word of God be our instructor. We should listen to what comes in our ears through His Word rather than our feelings, which we so often follow into disobedience. And yet something is still not right. There's this vague disquiet in Isaac's heart, and he asks one last time for this man's identity. Verse 24, and he said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. And so Jacob's lies are complete. The old man begins his private feast there, smacking his lips, wine dribbling down his beard, as you see in verse 25. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. The meal is over. The feast is complete. There remains one final test, verse 26. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Evidently, Esau smells like a locker room. (laughs) Right? And uh, Isaac loves it. Jacob smells like potpourri. Esau smells like an armpit. And, uh, And here he is. Oh, yeah, that's the smell of my boy. Right? And, uh, and there he, he confirms this identity. It is, it is, the intimacy is shocking, isn't it? Can you imagine? Surely kissing his father in deceit would be too much. And yet, sadly, no. Jacob paves this path, aligning himself perhaps with Judas, who also betrayed the father with a kiss. Well, satisfied, Isaac now rests his hands upon the pseudo-Esau, And blessed him from the depths of his soul. You notice three blessings you might identify there. First, a prayer for prosperity in verse 28. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. The dew would be the main source of irrigation, especially in the summer months in this arid land in which they live. Be necessary for abundance. Uh, Fatness was a sign of abundance as well. Plenty of grain and wine he, he blesses. Secondly, he prays for a kingdom, doesn't he not? In verse 29, let the people serve you, he says, and the nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may, note this, your mother's sons bow down to you. He says, I'm praying for a kingdom. I'm praying that even nations will come and bow to you, including your brothers, namely your mother's son, that boy Jacob, right? of whom he now rests his hands upon, unbeknownst to him. He's really backfiring against his father, isn't it? And then lastly, you see this clear link to the Abrahamic covenant of grace. At the end of verse 29, he says, Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. I mean, what a blessing this is. Fertile land, uh, you'll become an empire, divine protection, a covenant with God. And you see what's happening is Jacob is receiving What God has promised to him from the very beginning. He, not the older brother Esau, is the heir of the covenant of grace. And so here we find him stealing that blessing. Not sober by the solemn event that is before him, his father's deathbed blessing. Instead, he heaps lie upon lie, abuses the trust of a blind old man, invokes God's name, betrays his father with a kiss, steals his brother's birthright, and then slithers out of sight just in the nick of time as we see the fourth character in this tragedy, Esau, and his self-pity. As you see in verse 30, As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of his father Isaac, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He had prepared, he also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. I mean, maybe I've seen too many movies, but you could see, you know, Jacob just walking out and the tent flap closing right behind him. And in walks Esau with his plate of food while his daddy is there reclining in his most comfortable chair and his belly full and his heart now satisfied that his favorite son has received a blessing. And all of a sudden he is startled out of his self-congratulations with the word of Esau here in verse 31. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Which Isaac is utterly confused, wanting to know what in the world is going on. According to verse 32, his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? 
He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. And then note what takes place in Isaac's life. I think verse 33 is perhaps the most important verse in this passage. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who is it that then hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it before you came? I have blessed him, yes, and he will be blessed. He trembles, what does it say? Very violently. Perhaps your version says he trembled uncontrollably. The old man is now physically shaking. We would call this a panic attack. And he is right to panic. Because in that instant, it dawns on the old patriarch what has happened. The blind man sees that despite his schemes, God has overruled it all. And he knows, I have sought my own defiance against God, and God has yet sovereignly fulfilled his plan, and the house of cards comes crashing down upon him. As he realizes the enormity of his presumption, I believe he is shaken to the very depths of his being. And then he has this response, which I would suggest to you is praiseworthy. Isaac's response is not anger. It's not weeping. It's not vengeance. Those are the responses reserved for Esau. He does not call Jacob back in and say, you rat of a son, you deceived me. You're despicable. He does not say, I take it all back. Instead, I believe he is here in verse 33, repenting. He acknowledges that God has blessed him. What does he say? Yes, and he will be blessed. And if you think I'm reading too much into verse 33, I would Direct your attention, we don't have time to look there, to the New Testament commentary on this passage, Hebrews 11.20, in which it says, listen, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. And you think, by faith, he blessed them? What do you mean by faith? He had no idea he's even blessing Jacob. What does he mean by faith? This seems the exact opposite of faith. Well, I believe that commendation in Hebrews is not for that original blessing done in deceit, but in response to his recognition that his plan has failed, he now submits himself to God and says, Jacob will be blessed. Not because my words are magical, but because the blessing reflects the very will of God. In fact, some commentators believe this is the point of Isaac's conversion. That Isaac, of course, knows the gospel, he's acquainted with the promises of God, but perhaps he has never at this point submitted his life to God. Whether that's true of Isaac, I don't know, but I know it is true of many. Many, many people, perhaps some here, know God's promises, they know the gospel, and yet they refuse to yield to God. I would suggest to you that's a very dangerous place to be, my friend. If it is true of you that you are aware of all that God has promised to you through Christ and yet have yet to turn your life over to him, I pray that he would, as he did in Isaac, send a great trembling upon you, even great fear. I know he did so in my life. He doesn't do it in the same way for everybody, but he does do it for many. I remember the inner convulsions I had when I first heard the gospel, when I first heard that I was at enmity with God as I ruled my life in my own way. Clearly, it seems that Isaac is experiencing something like this, and I believe Isaac here is repenting. In fact, he would not waver now of his new conviction, even in the face of his weeping favorite beloved son Esau. So you see in verse 34, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. This is a sad verse, isn't it? This great emotion, this crying out. You say, what's going on? Why is it so emotional? Is this repentance in Esau's life? I'm afraid not. He's crying because his plan didn't work. He sheds his bitter tears not over his sin, but that his scheme has failed. In other words, he's crying that he doesn't get the inheritance. He's not going to get the money. He's not going to get the blessing. Isaac's response to him is is, uh, strong and stable in verse 35, but he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Isaac will not be moved. We see more of Esau's heart there in verse 36. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Right, where's the blame? (laughs) Well, it's my brother. 
He's to blame. And Jacob, he deceived me twice, he says, which is, of course, not true. Remember the first time, he gladly gave away his birthright. He despised it, in fact, the Bible tells us. But we tend to reinterpret reality so that we're not the sinner, we're the victim. And clearly Esau is walking this path. And he asks one more time, certainly there's a blessing left for me, isn't there? As you see in verse 36, reading on, he says, Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answers, pretty much, No, I haven't. Isaac answered to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you. And, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Of course, this is what every brother wants to hear. Right? Your younger brother is now your master. Okay? I gave him everything. And this leads to more tears and begging from Esau. Verse 38, Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Literally, the literal rendition is he's screaming here. Certainly you have something left for me. There's got to be something left. And you kind of feel bad for Esau, don't you? I mean, he got ripped off. And now he's crying. Now he's pathetic. Let's just be clear, though. Esau is evil, just like Jacob. Okay? Again, not good guys, bad guys. They're all bad guys. He despised his birthright. He married not one, but two women both outside the faith, and now he's sneaking back, trying to steal what he has sold. The Bible has a word for all that. It's called sin. And in case you're not, uh, you don't believe me, look in verse 41, which we'll consider next time. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. The only comfort he finds is in the homicidal fantasies about taking the life of his son. See, he's crying here because his brother is better at sinning than he is. He got out sinned. Right? Jacob's MLB when it comes to sin, Esau's still in the minors. And he got out sinned. There's no God forgive me. There's no what have I done. Right? He's just crying because someone's better at sinning than he is. And let me just say, just because someone's crying doesn't mean they're a victim. It's clearly here. As he weeps not over his sin, but over the consequences of his sin. There's a big difference. You understand that. Weeping over uh, your sin and weeping over the the consequences of your sin are different. He should repent. He should seek forgiveness. You say, what what, what could Esau do, you might ask? Or he's asked dad, do you have another blessing for me? Dad says, no, I I don't have anything for you. But is there some place where Esau can be blessed? Remember what the blessing that Jacob received? Remember the very end of it? Jacob, verse 29, blessed are those who bless you. Right? If Esau really wanted a blessing, he could go over to his brother Jacob and seek his forgiveness. Brother, I've sinned against you. I tried to sneak around your back and steal what was not mine. Will you forgive me? That'd be pretty humble, wouldn't it? And yet, is that not what we all must do? In some sense, must we not humbly come to God if we are to be saved by him and ask that Jacob's greater son would forgive us and bless us? Well, Isaac now submits himself fully to the word of God and offers this prophetic word for his firstborn son, verse 39. Then Isaac, his his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. I wonder how hard it was for Isaac to utter those words upon his favorite son in the face of his tears. And yet he has put his own desires aside and now follows God's plan. He says, Esau, I'm afraid your destiny is not the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth. Your destiny is want and need. In fact, Esau will become the nation of Edom, and they will settle down south and east of the promised land in a very arid area. And he says, you're going to live by the sword. You're going to be in constant conflict. Eventually, you're going to be subjugated by your brother. Of course, Jacob would lead to the nation of Israel, and Edom would be subjected by the Israelites under the reign of David. 
But eventually he says you're going to break that yoke, and they will do so in the year 586 when Babylon comes to destroy Judah. The people of Edom will join the Babylonians against the Jews, rising up against them, giving rise to the prophet Obadiah, who will announce the ultimate destruction on the descendants of Esau in fulfillment of this prophecy. Quite a family, isn't it? Did you find the hero? Everyone in this family is seeking what they want without bending a knee to God. Isaac is told by God to bless Jacob. He says, no, I'll bless Esau. I'll do it in secret behind my wife's back. Rebecca doesn't seek God or act in love. She's going to manipulate her son and deceive her husband. Jacob, a grown man, is obeying his mama, not the Lord, lies to his father, blasphemes God, steals a blessing. Esau breaks his own oath, seeks to deceitfully take back what he has sold, and when he doesn't work, he decides to kill his brother. My friends, those are the chosen people of God. In fact, God at this point, as far as we know, has one family that he's working in, and this is it. They are swimming in a sea of sin. Ambition, envy, lying, coveting, malice, manipulation, stubbornness, theft, and utter stupidity. And yet, despite it all, God is, has, as you see, accomplished exactly what he said he would do. The younger will be blessed. Everyone's working on their own agenda, all doing it in sin. All of this leads, by the way, to terrible consequences. This family is destroyed at the end of this day. They'll never be brought back together. It is, it is utter ruin upon them. And yet, through it all, God's will is accomplished. His promises will not be stopped, even by our sin. That ought to give us great comfort. In the midst of a world full of sin and even sin in our own life, God's intent to be good to you and kind to you and bless you, Christian, will not be stopped by even your own sinfulness. In fact, God often uses the wickedness of, of people to do exactly what he said they would do. We'll read later in, in uh, Genesis 15, verse 20, what they intended for evil, you intended for good. God uses our sin. Isaac's rebellion, Rebekah's manipulation, Jacob's deceit, Esau's indifference to do exactly what he said he would do. Still sin, still evil, there's still consequences, and yet God is going to work, not just in spite of sin, but even through sin, to accomplish his good's plan, to do something beautiful and glorious, to further his plan of redemption. And so take encouragement in your life that nothing can stop God. Nothing, not even you. Not even your own wickedness. Nothing will stop God's plan to bless you, Christian, to redeem you, Christian, to save you, Christian. He has this indomitable determination to save wicked people. And he will do it despite the sins of his children. In fact, the chief example of this is something we find in the New Testament, isn't it? It is the wicked murder of his son by which he provides salvation for everyone who would trust in him. You want to know how to be saved. It is by uniting to Christ in faith. Right? And all that sin that was placed upon Jesus, God was using to bring about and fulfill his plan of redemption, to have a substitute die in our place, to bear our sin, and being raised from the three days later. And we're united to Christ in that work, if you will, if we wear his righteous robes. It is sad that Jacob here seeks the blessing of the Father and does so under the guise of another. And yet, is that not also our situation? Does that not point us to the plan of God? Not because something is deficient in our Father, but something is deficient in us. Because of our sin, our Father will not bless us unless we wear the garments of the firstborn. Unless we put on His righteousness. And we do so. Not in deceit. This is God's plan. In fact, He gives us the garment. You know, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gatherings, to the church, listen to this word, to the church of the firstborn. I think, what does that mean? Is this just a church of firstborns? That sounds weird. How, how do you have a family of firstborn? You got 10 kids? How do you have, how are they all, how are they all firstborns? Well, in the family of God, though we're sinners, we all receive the blessing that is due to the firstborn child. But only if, like Esau, the firstborn loses his blessing. 
We might say that Jesus Christ dressed up as us and received the curse that we deserve so that we might dress up like Jesus and receive the blessing he deserves. This is not what Galatians 3 tells us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, namely you and I. In fact, it reminds me of those careless words that Rebecca uttered. Remember, she said, let the curse be upon me. Are those not words that Jesus has echoed? Let the curse be upon me, Father, for all who would come to me. Our curse was borne by Jesus himself. And in that great tragedy and sin, they falsely accuse him. They beat him. They scourge him. They mock him. They spit in his face and nail him to a cross until he's dead In the the height of sin, unimaginable wickedness, God is achieving the greatest blessing imaginable. That he is finding a way, a holy God, to take away your sin and to bless you. My brothers and sisters in Christ, you have been blessed. Because your sins are covered in Jesus. And we come even now to this table to be reminded of that work. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over all things, even in the midst of sin. We don't want to sin. We hate our sin. We sin far too much. The world is full of sin and rebellion and wickedness. It's in our own lives and our own hearts. We ask that you would help us to repent of it and become more and more like Jesus. And yet, despite it all, your plans will not fail. Give us, therefore, great encouragement, Father, that through Christ... We can be blessed by you if we put on his righteous robes, despairing of our own efforts, our own schemes, our own goodness, and coming to you and saying, Father, will you forgive me for all that I have done against you and will do against you? Will you forgive me through the work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross to bear my penalty and rose three days later to pay the path through death for me? Will you forgive me? Will you bless me? And you will, Father, won't you? By your grace. And so we are blessed people today. And even as we take this Lord's Supper, we are reminded of the cost of our blessing. May it cause great joy in our hearts as we follow after you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.